0: we headed for a Jarvis-like world? I mean, kind of, yes. I think we are. I don't think it's all that creepy. I think it will feel natural. And we should not confuse the Jarvis world with the human inspiration that will also be a part of that world. And we believe in both. It's kind of like, what makes Disneyland Disneyland? the fast pass and the prediction of the rides, and each of the rides can do all kinds of cool AI thing. But it's also the fact that they, they make the smell of churros like waft through the air, and no machine made that decision. That's the point, is the great experiences at the end of the day are data-driven, but they're very, very much human-infused as well.
1: What role does conviction play in business success? Raj Dadada, the CEO and Co founder of Bloomreach certainly has strong convictions. He believes that personalized experiences in the future will still be created by humans and AI. Raj also believes that the use of first party data is the reality that we're already living in. Learn more about how these convictions have set up Bloomreach for a rocket ship of success twice. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. He is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Bloomreach. That is B-L-O-O-M-R-E-A-C-H, all one word. Raj Dadada, welcome to the show. Albert, it's great to be here with you. Listen, we're excited to talk to you and talk to you about your business and learn a little bit about Bloomreach and the technology behind it. But before we do, we wanna understand who you are outside of the world of work. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Raj, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So it sounds like you just wrote your first book. Do you love writing and did you love the process?
0: You know, honestly, I really did love the process uh, I, and I do love writing. It's, it's something that I discovered is that I sort of missed writing. And there's a certain articulation that you can put down when you have to put it down on paper that can't be replicated in any other medium, I found. And so it really forced me to distill my thoughts, make it clear, stand up for it. So I enjoyed the research, I enjoyed the writing. Of course, it was a topic that I knew well, so that helped. What I will say is the publishing process kind of sucks. It's like very, (laughs) it's incredibly old world. Like, you know, it comes from a different era, it feels like
1: yeah and go ahead and plug your book. What's
0: the book about? so the book's called the Digital Seeker and um, it I wrote the book because people ask me you know why do the digital winners win and why do the losers lose? Yeah, and so this book is my answer to that question and it's it's just a great profile of modern stories like like the stitch fixes and the Red the Runways, but it's also you know I'm, on, I'm involved with the U.S. Tennis Association. And so it's, in, it's their journey around digital. It's the National Health Service in, in the UK. So it's a great collection of stories, but it's really synthesized in this thesis that if you really want to win big in digital, what the research told me is you got to build for the motivations of the customer, not what the customer tells you they're interested in. And so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with that. Okay. We got to, we got
1: to hit into that. We got to hit into that because yeah. that directly plays into your business. But before we get going into the business, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you like to do outside of work?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I've got, I've got two young kids. I spend plenty of time with them. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned the tennis. That's a big part of my life, both myself, my kids involvement with, with the USTA, some charitable causes that, uh, you know, that, that uh, I'm involved with and then uh, seeing my friends, you know, whenever they'll see me. So pretty, pretty <laughs> low key. When it comes to
1: tennis, who's your favorite athlete?
0: You know, I'm a Roger Federer fan. Uh, my, you know, I, we have this battle because my son is a Rafa Nadal fan. And so that's a okay. rivalry that's been been going on forever. But, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been fun to be involved in this sport.
1: Who's the next up and comer people should pay attention to?
0: Well, you know, what's really encouraging for us here in America is that there's like a number of young American men. American women have done really well in tennis yeah. for, over the last many years with, with Serena and, and Venus and, and, and the like. But uh, there's three young American men. Brandon Nakashima who's from, from L.A., Sebastian Corda, who's a really good tennis player, and then Jensen Brooksby. And so these are all like 19, 20-year-old guys who have never really, like, haven't yet gotten there, but they're really rising. And so watch out.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, I would say, being a sports fan myself, we hear a lot about the American women. Obviously, Serena has dominated, the, the Williams sisters have dominated the, the limelight for so long yeah and arguably still control much of the the mind share for yeah so then there always seemed to be like there was the next up-and-coming female that could possibly take the reins like you know that's, that's right. passed the torch quite a while but there hasn't been an american guy prominently yes. featured since roddick that's right and that was a while ago when he was younger that was a
0: while ago it's been like <laughs> over 20 years so uh it's very cool to see these 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 young guys um uh, start to make a statement
1: yeah, we're we'll look forward to that. Well, Raj, you know, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. I want to circle back to the top of the conversation, which is of course the business of Bloomreach. You kind of hinted at it to begin with in your lightning round questions where you're talking about you got to answer the motivation of the customer. So let's start there because yeah. Well, actually let's start here. Bloomreach is a I'm going to say what I read it is. You're going to tell us what it actually is. But from what I understand it, it's it's principally used by commerce companies and it's designed to personalize the interface. Yeah. for the person, whoever is coming to the site. That's right. Uh, this has been a promise of many companies for a long time. It sounds like you guys are doing it better than others. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, I've, I've used a tool called Optimizely. It was really hard to use uh, <laughs> and I wasn't good at it. Yeah. But I've tried, I've attempted to make personalized experiences. But of course that was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. Tell us what has happened technologically and why that matters. And because I think it ties probably quite well into what you just said, which is you got to answer someone's motivation.
0: That's right. So, you know, to start with the the motivation, you know, point, I mean, you know, if you if you're out, let's say you go out and you go out into the web and you look for plywood. Okay. Well, what are you looking for? Why are you looking for plywood, right? You could go build a store and say, okay, I've got a home goods store and I'm selling plywood. And I'm going to make sure that the experience is amazing selling plywood. But what the research says is There's a reason why someone's buying plywood. You might be building a deck, for example. And if you build the e-commerce experience to help people build a deck, you're going to sell a lot more plywood than if you build the e-commerce experience to sell plywood. And that's what I mean by saying build for the motivations of the purchase. And that transforms. And so that's the eyeglass buying experience that we see at Warby Parker. And that's the experience we see with fashion at Stitch Fix. These are all you know, modern digital experiences. So that's the, what the book catalogs is, how you do that. Now, as you trace that into Bloomerage, what's interesting is what you said, you know, personalization has been a trend forever. Yeah. I think it's been an unfulfilled promise. Yeah. And I think for, for 20 years, people have been talking about personalizing it. And you tell me, if you go out on, on the web today and you're shopping or you're reading or you're dating or whatever you're doing online, what's the likelihood it's personalized? And the answer is very low. It's just not that much of the web is personalized, still 20 years later. And so our view was there's like two or three catalysts that that drive change there. One is we gotta make it incredibly easy. It's really hard for brands and people to create personalized experiences. Like, okay, I gotta like first stitch my data together and then I gotta put that on a system and then I gotta build real-time eventing and I gotta hire machine learning scientists. Then I got to build models and segmentation and plug into email, then plug into web and plug in. It's like a nightmare. By that time you've been fired by the way. Yeah. So it's like incredibly hard. And so we, we seek to make it really easy, number one. Number two, you know, we've seen this transition from generic personalization to first party personalization. And what you've seen from Apple and Google is as cookies go away from browsers, there's only one thing that matters if you're personalizing which is, do you understand your customers? And so the second insight was really like, let's figure out a way to start with customer understanding. And the third insight was you can't possibly create personalized experiences manually if you've got anywhere near a certain number of customers and a certain number of products. So you got to use AI and machine learning to make that happen. you got to automate it. So those are the three things that Blue Breach does incredibly well to make this all possible.
1: Yeah. When you were talking there, I was just thinking to myself, because you asked that question, do you know if it's a personalized experience or not? And I just think to myself, you know, I can't tell. And that's probably the good and the bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Is I can't tell, but I do know there are certain places that just feel like you suggested, like that I just like using, or it's easier to use. They're probably better at it. right? Yeah, (laughs) they're probably better at it. Now you kind of hinted at let's, let's tackle the first part, which is why is it complicated because. I've seen, for example, flow mapping of customer journeys. I mean, there's a lot of things. And, and the big thing I I always remember about people doing this is like it's a lot of it's human decisions. Like meaning yes. I, the programmer, have to decide, hey, Raj says, he, let's imagine I'm a sports goods store. I sell shoes. I sell shoes. Raj, I get a signal that he likes tennis. Yeah. But then I am the one, meaning me, Big Al, has to figure out all the things I need to show you after that. To get my tennis buyer to to come down the funnel. That's right. Which is based on what I think. It's not based on anything else. Talk about what, because you mentioned AI is assisting in this process. Yeah. Let's use that example. What what is it about your technology or what you're asking your engineers to help invent to say like, hey, this is what we need to do for a tennis player who comes in or a basketball player that comes in, someone who comes in trying to pick out their shoe. We need to help the marketer because I just said it. The marketer has to decide. I mean, it's really it's not an easy decision tree?
0: Yeah. You know, so the first thing to, to know is that where the AI and the data science comes in is it even identifying that I have an affinity to tennis. Yeah. We're not so simple. I might've gone on the store and checked out a bunch of tennis things, but maybe I bought a basketball for my son. Maybe I was checking out some golf gear. How do you really know what my affinities are in the first place? That, that itself needs listening and data science. So that's the first place we come in is process all the data elements to help build the cohorts, the segments and the affinities to really understand that you have an affinity to tennis in the first place. And then once I've figured that out, then as you say, it's figuring out all the the things that I can present that increase the probability that I buy. Maybe I bought a tennis racket the last time so selling me another racket one week later, isn't gonna make sense. Maybe you should put some balls up there. Maybe you should should put some grips up there, uh, other such things. So the system will then, once it has identified what you have an affinity to, figure out what products to present mm. to you. And the third thing is it'll figure out what to present in the respective medium. So it isn't just about the website, right? What email do I send you? What SMS message do I send you? What ad do I send you? When do I show you something in the marketing versus when do I show you something, you know, on the website itself? So orchestrating the different marketing channels and touch points to make sure that I present the right thing in each of them is then the third part of the AI. And then there's the learning once, once you've done it. So, all right, you showed me all this tennis gear. Well, did I click on something? Did I buy something? It's not a one-time decision. Right. right. It's really a recursive loop to then keep optimizing that experience for me as a consumer better and better.
1: Where do you think, you know, because you've been in this in Bloomreach uh, 13 years is what we saw. We looked up a little over yeah. 13 years, it looks like. Where would you say like the current investment of energy is? Is it because I feel like the recognition might probably be i can see how recognizing and that's probably getting really really accurate but the thing that this industry really i think could benefit the most from is helping the marketers or the practitioners actually know what to do next just what to do next because because in a sense you know this these types of tools are very much like we used construction earlier with plywood it is like wood wood in the hands of a great contractor, you can build a beautiful house. You put right. them in someone who doesn't know what to do next. They can't build anything. So yeah, <laughs> right? that's right. Right. So how do you help people make better decisions? I think I would assume the energy's there now, but you tell us, where do you see how the product's evolving and this space evolving? Where do you think you're spending most of your engineering, I guess, energy?
0: Well, I think, I think that is, that is a very big part is, uh, you know, one surfacing insights from the data. So that you can prompt people to do the right thing rather than leave it as an open canvas. Right. You know, for, for the marketers and the merchandisers. So we build a lot of things that say, all right, your goal is you're trying to drive, you know, you're trying to take the people that might leave you as a brand and, and get them reengaged. Or you're trying to trying to think about the people who spend more your most loyal customers. What do you do with that? Right. So you start to, to identify these next actions and these next playbooks. specific cohorts identify the cohorts but as you say determine the experiences largely automatically sometimes you can do that even without the practitioner being involved at all you can just figure it out and and dynamically you know present i'll give you an example you know we work with with a a bike retailer called jensen and they sell road bikes and and mountain bikes and and so on and so forth right Mm -hmm. the marketer hasn't had to do anything to do this but the system will automatically identify Are you a road biker or are you a mountain biker? And um, are you a performance biker or are you a recreational biker? And it will figure that out by itself. And then it will completely orient the catalog of products that it presents to you. If you go search for a bike, you're gonna see on that site that the ones that are more mountain bike or road bike Mm. that automatically show up. Now, no marketer has gone and created that experience. The system has identified who you are. The system has figured out what products to present. The system has determined the rank order of, of those products. And it's just watching how you're engaging. So that's an example.
1: Listen, there's a bunch of bikers here at Mission already. So I'm going to tell you that we're all going to be crawling on Jensen's website after this call. <laughs> and you be like, hey, what is this? I want to see this experience. You know, give us an idea because we looked you up and you've, of course, been at Bloomreach now. We mentioned earlier in the call, 13 years or more. You know, you originally it looks like a product marketer at Cisco. Walk us back. What what made you want to get in the space? Is this always what BloomRange was going to be? Uh, how did you start the company? Give us an idea of how it's like the, the genesis, if you will.
0: Yeah, so I've been, I've been an entrepreneur for a lot of years, more than I can count at this point, 20 plus years, 25 years. And uh, so I've, I've been involved in starting companies twice before this, and, and this, this go around, you know, I think the intuition was, I felt like there was all this incredible AI and machine learning technology, but it was really being used by people like Google and Facebook back in 2009. And I thought, you know, no one I know is really that interested in going online because they're psyched about ads. They're, they're, going, they're, they're like going online because they're interested in experiences and shopping and buying and reading. And so I got hooked on the application of this technology in the e-commerce space, which I felt like was gonna. we were all going to be living our lives digitally. And that mm-hmm. day has obviously come through the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And so the thought was, hey, why can't we apply this technology to make every experience online amazing? and on point and, and you know, aligned. So that original mission, what we call magical and measurable experiences for people in business, that was true in 2009 and it's true today. The business journey to get here was incredibly windy. And so, you know, I would summarize it, and we can double click on this if you'd like. I would summarize it as Bloomreach was a rocket ship, and then it was nearly dead, <laughs> and then it's a rocket ship again. <laughs>
1: go oh, well now you got it you've given us a cliffhanger give what happened because you know i think your hypothesis is solid this was something that was going to happen was it more like the marketplace wasn't ready for what you were promising the technology didn't quite fit like how did it almost fade away and then of course we want to know how you resuscitated the business because it's yeah it's obviously pretty popular now we saw that you've got a funding round valuation at 2.2 billion recently it's probably even worth more now you're signing customers you on the website, says 850 plus customers. Walk us through that, like how, because like you said, the hypothesis you had was great. Yeah, that's right. But something went wrong. Something went wrong.
0: And what went wrong was we picked our, we were like, all right, we're gonna go personalize all these experiences, but no one is gonna take a startup based in Mountain View, California with two people and trust their entire website and e-commerce experience to the startup. So let's pick one application. And we the application we picked was actually an SEO application. It mm-hmm. was like, we're going to go build landing pages that anticipate consumer demand and attract more eyeballs to a site based on SEO. And it was a good proposition and it actually kind of did too well. It was not why we started the business, but that initial application took off, but was ultimately non-scalable. Like SEO is totally controlled by Google. Yeah. It was very variable. You know, there was less and less footprint of the Google search results that were oriented to SEO. So the value proposition kind of worked really well in its early days, almost too well. And so instead of building out the rest of the vision earlier, we stayed with it for too long, I think. And ultimately, you know, realized this wasn't a business that was going to scale. And so by, by kind of 2015, 2016, actually what we did is just get back to the vision and say, let's actually go build exactly what we said we would go build at the beginning, instead of writing what was working kind of too well in the beginning, but wasn't going to scale. And we built out what today we think of as this e-commerce Experience cloud, which is everything it takes to power an e-commerce journey from the moment of first interaction, say in an email message or ad or, or SMS, all the way through the purchase path until somebody finds the, the tennis racket they're looking for, the basketball, the plywood, you know, you know, all the way through that consumer journey. And and that really worked.
1: Was that pivot decision more a forcing function of like cash and investors, or was it more of an internal decision, like, hey, we're going down the wrong path? You know, I think it was a
0: little bit of both. We had sort of started this path earlier and then the, you know, the S really hit, you know, the fan or whatever you yeah. call that. Like it really <laughs> was, was like things went terribly wrong. Like we started to lose revenue and customers and that original business was not scaling. And, and we, we felt like we got to act with urgency. So I think yeah. the raw material was there earlier, but the actual like urgency to pivot, that was around 2015, 2016. Now, when you first got started,
1: were you one of the developers on the application? Were you more of the vision, product vision? Where, what role did you have in the beginning?
0: Yeah, so I was definitely product vision uh, by then. I had been a developer in my past. I, I studied electrical engineering, but my coding skills by then had atrophied to the point of embarrassment. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and really, I, just, I, I, I had a pretty clear sight of what we wanted to build and a pretty clear understanding of the problem we wanted to solve. And I was certainly hands on on the product for sure early on, but I recruited a great tech team, including a co-founder and and uh, early engineering team, and you know five or six of us kind of just powered through.
1: Yeah. So when you when it's when you sit on that product side, how do you approach decisions in your product? Because you have a product that kind of you sit in. I would say, well, not that any product's easy, but it's a pretty complicated arena, right? Because you have customers but they already have their existing tech stack. So that means your tech stack has to work with their tech stack, Yeah, 100%, right? They're not gonna, That's right. as someone who has sold technology onto an e-commerce site, I could tell you that the big companies protect that website, like it's, it's the holy grail. They're not gonna let, I mean, you already know this, security reviews, they wanna check your, <laughs> what's your identification policy, your insurance policy, like they're not gonna let any scripts on their site, especially now that aren't vetted, secured, all those things, right? So give us an idea of how you think about your product, your company decision tree. Because there's all these things you guys want to build. Yet that what you're doing, someone might consider it invasive. Some might consider it. Are you taking too much PII? Like what are you doing here? How are you personalizing so much? So you're sitting in this really delicate place because you got to you got to build the technology as great as it can be, but you also have to comply with
0: whatever they already got. Absolutely. No, you raise a great you raise a great point, Albert, and. I think that was one of the architectural and design principles we had early on that, that has carried forward and remained, which is build everything as an API. Uh, so everything we build at the end of the day, what Bloom is, we'll power the search box, we'll power the navigation menus, we'll power the email, we'll power the content, we'll power every aspect of the customer experience. But every one of those is an independent API that is accompanied by tools. So what happens is when somebody's got an e-commerce Website or marketing program, they make decisions about whether they want to call the API or not. Mm. So we're not going in and massively invading their systems. We're letting people pick the Lego blocks they want that optimize their customer experience one by one, and uh, and do so in in a relatively arm's length way. And if we don't do that, we can't scale. Then we then accompany that with incredible tools, so with great marketing and merchandising tools for practitioners to be able to build these experiences without technical people necessarily being involved. So those are the two ways we ultimately interact as people give us their data, we turn through it in our models, we publish that back by APIs, and we we provide tools for control. And that makes the business incredibly scalable Yeah, and easily connectable to any e-commerce environment.
1: You know, one of the things that's really interesting about the space is there was a, it was a while ago, but it's also pretty recently, Like some of the brands are trying to get into this space as well. Uh, they, you know, one of the funniest ones was, or it's not funny, but interesting. It was, you know, when McDonald's acquired a company called dynamic Dynamic. yield, like what are they doing? Like they're, they're going to buy their own tech stack to like customize their menus. Like people were trying to figure out like what it is they're trying to do. Yeah. Every company's trying to do this. Yeah. What do you think is, because, so you're in a race with everybody else, right? So it's whether it's brand side, other software vendors, and there's probably some kid in their garage right now, Raj, that wants to come after Bloomreach. You know what I mean? Your marketplace. So it's ultra competitive. Absolutely. What does that hold for the future of personalization? And we'll start with consumer, because that's where you're at, consumer in shopping. And then, of course, I'd love to hear what you think is going to happen in the future, just in general for us as listeners of this show, like, what do you think is going to happen to us in like all the experiences we have digitally? Like, are they all going to be so preemptive? It's going to be like working with Jarvis of <laughs> Iron Man. Like, I don't know. Like you, yeah, you, I'd love to
0: hear your vision on this. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Iron Man's definitely my favorite Avenger. So you picked the right <laughs> one there. Um, so, you know, first on your point, yes, that, you know, a little baffling that McDonald's decides to get into the software business, uh, yeah. you know, have some software with. They already spun it out. I think they were like, we don't know what to do with this. Yeah, they spun it out. It's now with Matt. It's actually, it's actually been bought by Mastercard now, which is equally another So another brand. So, yes. so you know, it's either like, you know, you get you get some software for free with your credit card, or you get some software for free with your burger. I don't know. It's like one of those two. But but ultimately, um, you know, back to your your question, I think it is an incredibly competitive space, and we see that as a good thing. I mean, it, it there's a lot of vibrancy yeah. to this space. And so when we think about how you win long-term and what you build that that causes you to win in the long-term, you gotta solve really important problems for customers that move the needle on their business, number one. You gotta have these customer experiences be deeply integrated. And you gotta have a data, proprietary data engine or asset that stands apart. Otherwise, the next person in the garage can can come by and, and build the next thing. But I'll tell you, the trouble with competing with Bloomberg is, We have 400, we power $400 billion of gross merchandise value. That means our machine learning and our AI is trained on all of that. And so you can literally steal our code and rewrite it and it still wouldn't work. It won't work. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It won't work very well. So that's the issue, you know, is that, you know, if you, at the end of the day, we we believe that great experiences are a data problem. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's what we've invested in you know, in all these years to try to be really good at it. And by the way, being a data problem, you have to be domain focused too, because there's a very different thing to determine what, you know, how to show what insurance product you want to show uh, than an e-commerce. So by specializing and going deep, it has enabled us to build, build some proprietary advantage that, that's hard. Now back to your earlier question, are we headed for a Jarvis-like world? I mean, kind of, yes. I mean, I think, I think we are. Um, I don't think it's all that creepy. I think it will feel natural. And we should not confuse the Jarvis world with the, you know, human inspiration that will also be a part of that world. And we yeah. believe in both, right? Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, what makes mm-hmm. Disneyland Disneyland? Well, sure. It's like, you know, the fast pass and the prediction of the rides and each of the rides can do all kinds of cool AI thing. But it's also the fact that they they make the smell of churros like waft through the air and no machine made that decision. Right. Yeah. Uh, And so that's the point is the great experiences at the end of the day are data driven, but they're very, very much human infused as well.
1: Yeah. I like that hypothesis because. I think that's been true of humanity since the beginning of time, right? we back to our lumber example. Everyone's everyone's always had the exact same tooling. It's just that some people know how to apply it in a different way than, than someone else, or someone has a different vision for something than someone else, and then we all benefit from that. You know, I think to what you talked about with the data, the moat, right? The what, what Warren Buffett would call that a moat of that data, yeah. that information that you have. You know, it's really fascinating because... On the one hand, we all, a lot of us talk about privacy and we want more security and we want information more protected. But like, I remember or seeing in just recently when iOS announced those new updates, like people were complaining that the Facebook feeds no longer made sense Yeah, because like Facebook couldn't figure out, like, well, what do you want to see? (laughs) We've so long banked on the fact that we understood what you would visit away from Facebook, which allowed us to say, oh, you like this. You like tennis. You like sports news. I can bring you more of that. But then they lost that ability. And then it was like, we all got nonsense for a while. And then they got to change their algorithm. And like, wow, people actually care very much so that they have a personalized experience. They don't know when you're, we all don't know when we're getting it, but we know when we don't have it. That's the thing. That's the big problem.
0: 100%. 100%. You know, this is a great discussion. So, first of all, uh, the changes that, have been made with IDFA and, and the like uh, around cookies and in favor of have actually been really important to our business because it means that if you're a brand, yeah you used to be able to just, you know, Hey, I can do the Facebook ads and they'll show something relevant or I'll use cookies and I'll personalize on that basis, but you don't get to do that anymore. So what do you have left?
1: yeah What you have
0: left is your customers. Uh, and so you, if you do not start with a deep and lasting understanding of your customers, and then go out into the world and find people like them that's how you personalize the experience it's all a first party world and a first party world requires you know uh, a customer data platform requires the level of personalization that we have built you know that that's the foundational layer for how you personalize you don't get to take the shortcuts of just looking at the cookies and what what people clicked on you got to actually build profiles yourself as a brand and then you got to feed that to facebook if you want them to show relevant ads related to your brand in the newsfeed, so yeah. that's the new world we all uh, operate in. is is a first party world. Yeah, and it's been it's been important, you know, all around.
1: And it's a it's a big challenge. It's a challenge that won't go away. Whenever I hear someone say that they've solved it, I always think to myself, no, because you haven't solved it. Because like I, I think about like going on Amazon.com, and I can always tell the second I log on if my wife has been shopping on my uh, yeah. on, on my, or if my kids have been looking for something. Like I'll know instantly, I'm like, oh, I see nonstop, like, you know, Pokemon toys. I'm like, dang it, this is my teenager. He, he, exactly. He's fascinated by <laughs> Pokemon. I was like, exactly. and so yeah. they haven't figured out, I don't think anyone's actually figured this out because the other thing that you're also always accommodating for is how human behavior is always changing. Like we don't, we share devices, we have different interests, we, We do things online that may not represent actually who we, what we actually care about, or there's certain things we want to do in secret. There's tons of things that make this tricky. Yeah. A lot of signals that aren't very clear, I would say.
0: Well, and you said, you said it well, actually bad personalization pisses off consumers more than no, than no personalization. Yeah. Right. Right. Because if you show the wrong thing and you're like, oh, well. I thought you were, I thought you were, you know, here for maternity shopping. And so I've showed you all this maternity gear and it turns out you're not pregnant at all. You're pretty upset. It's (laughs) not a brand you love after that. So um, there's all these negative cases that you have to watch out for that uh, exist. And and yeah, I think, I think that, um, you know, we are headed for a privacy centered world. Yeah. And so there is no such thing as discussing personalization without having a strong privacy point of view. And, And certainly we do.
1: There you go. Well, Raj, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing the stories of Bloomreach, how you got started, how you hypothesized the future, how you kind of went down the wrong path, but also how you re-steered the ship. Yeah. And uh, it's exciting to see companies like yours grow. I know that we, for anyone who's listening, we might not recognize it, but we all, like you said, we we might not recognize things are being personalized for us, but man, we sure as hell do recognize when they're not. And it's annoying.
0: That's <laughs> right. That's right. Absolutely.
1: Raj, thanks for joining us on ITV. Thanks a lot,
0: Albert.